Chapter 11, Part 1 of The Suffragette, The History of the Woman's Militant Suffrage Movement by E. Sylvia Pankhurst. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 11. The Third Women's Parliament and More Militant Tactics Calls upon Cabinet Ministers, The Third Women's Parliament, The Pantechnicon Van Stratagem, Mrs. Pankhurst's First Arrest, Mr. Dickinson's Bill, the first Albert Hall meeting and the by-election at Peckham. Incidents in the Votes for Women campaign now followed each other with such rapidity that they defy the chronicler who wishes to note them down. Because vigorous militancy was the order of the day, the press teemed with articles upon the abstract question of Votes for Women and with notices of the doings of the suffragettes. Suffragettes in Downing Street, Cabinet baiting as the latest ruse, Suffragettes in Chains, these and others of the same nature were the startling headlines that one saw in the evening papers on January 17th and in the morning papers of the following day. It was merely that Mrs. Drummond and a number of other members of our union, knowing that the cabinet was sitting to decide upon the questions which should find a place in the legislative program of the forthcoming session, had made an attempt to urge upon them the necessity of dealing with the woman's claim. Whilst press representatives were congregating in Downing Street to snapshot the ministers and to gain material for the foolish paragraphs, describing their appearance and manner of arrival at the first cabinet council of the season, and whilst police were assembling to dance attendance upon the prime minister and his colleagues, three or four of the women appeared to demand an interview. The police pulled them aside and the cabinet ministers brushed past as they tried to speak, and when they applied at the door of the official residence, no notice was taken. Then Miss New, well knowing that her words would be heard both inside the house and by the crowd that was collecting in the street, began to make a speech explaining what she and her friends had come for. Before beginning, she chained herself to the railings beside the Prime Minister's front door, both symbolically to express the political bondage of womanhood, and for the very practical reason that this device would prevent her being dragged speedily away. Her example was followed by Nurse Olivia Smith and, whilst the police were struggling to break the double set of chains, a taxicab drove up and stopped on the opposite side of the street. Suspecting more suffragettes, some of the constables rushed to the door of the cab which opened onto the pavement. At the same moment, Mrs. Drummond, for it was she who had devised this stratagem, opened the cab door on the roadside and bounded across to the sacred residence where, as there was no one to bar her progress and as she now possessed the secret of the little knob in the center of the door, she was inside and very near to the council chamber itself, before a number of men, some of whom she believed to be cabinet ministers, though owing to the violent and buried nature of her ejection it was impossible to make quite sure, rushed upon her and she was flung out and hurled down the steps. She was then arrested, and shortly afterwards she and four of her comrades found themselves before Sir Albert de Rutson at Bow Street Police Court, charged with disorderly conduct. They were found guilty, and on refusing to be bound, were sent to prison for three weeks. Instead of placing them in the first division, as had been done in the case of all the suffragettes since the transfer of Mrs. Cobden Sanderson, and the rest of us had taken place in October 1906, the authorities reverted to the old plan of putting them in the second class. On January 29th, the King opened Parliament in great state, and four members of the Women's Freedom League rushed in to the royal procession and attempted to present him with a petition, but were dragged back and hustled aside by the soldiery and police. 
the king's speech did not contain any mention of votes for women, and the woman's social and political union was already preparing to confer upon the subject at a woman's parliament to be held in the Caxton Hall on February 11th, 12th, and 13th. In the meantime, the members of the Women's Freedom League had determined to make an immediate protest, and the day after the opening of Parliament they set out to interview six members of the Cabinet. Three of the ladies, Dr. Helen Borscher, Mrs. Kenningdale Cook, a well-known novelist, and Miss Monroe, a Scotchwoman from Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman's constituency, visited Mr. Haldane at his house at Queen Anne's Gate at 9.30. They agreed with the butler to wait outside until Mr. Haldane could see them but the Secretary of State for War telephoned to the police, who soon appeared in force and placed the women under arrest. The same sort of thing happened at the houses of Sir Edward Grey, Mr. Harcourt, and Captain Sinclair. Altogether seven women were arrested and sentenced to terms of imprisonment varying from two to six weeks. In the afternoon of the same day, Mr. Asquith received a deputation from the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies. He then definitely said that the government would not introduce a vote-for-women measure on their own account, and also refused to hold out any hope that the government would allow of the passage of a private member's bill. As they left the Treasury offices, the so-called constitutional suffragists agreed that Mr. Asquith's remarks would merely serve to incite the suffragettes to further militancy. They judged rightly, for the next day, nine members of the Women's Freedom League called at Mr. Asquith's house at number 20, Cavendish Square, and on being refused an interview with him, decorated his area railings with votes for women, banners, and bills, and using his topmost doorstep as a platform, proceeded to address a crowd of some seventy persons that had collected. Four arrests were the result. The women were brought up before Mr. Plowden at Marylebone Police Court and claimed the right to speak in their own defense, but Dr. Helen Borsher, the first who uttered a word, was stopped by the would-be witty Mr. Plowden, who said rudely, Behave yourself. You are the bellwether of the flock. He then declared all the women guilty of obstruction and ordered them either to pay fines of forty shillings or to undergo one month's imprisonment in the second division, saying that he wanted them to understand that if they thought the punishment light, it was because it was all that the law allowed him to give them, and adding, I do not consider it by any means a fair measure of your deserts. Meanwhile, the reversion to the policy of treating the suffragettes as ordinary criminals instead of according to them the treatment usually meted out to political prisoners was being raised in both houses of Parliament. Earl Russell and others urged the government that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church, but the government were deaf alike to appeal and warning. The Women's Social and Political Union had long realized this, and when the Third Women's Parliament met in the Caxton Hall on February 11, 1908, it did so with all the splendid courage and enthusiasm for militant action that had characterized its predecessors. It was now known that an excellent place in the private member's ballot had been won, and on the Women's Bill by Mr. Stanger, a liberal, and it was realized that before February 28, when the bill was to come up for second reading, Strong pressure must be brought to bear upon the government to prevent this bill being wrecked as that of Mr. Dickinson had been in the previous year. It was therefore with an added sense of immediate pressing necessity that the women set up unflinchingly for the old hard fight with overwhelming force. The motion to carry the usual resolution to the Prime Minister was moved by Miss Marie Naylor and Miss Florence Hegg, both London members of the Union and both Chelsea portrait painters, and then the whole hall seemed to rock with the noise of the cheers as the majority of the women present sprang up to form a deputation.
Meanwhile, an extraordinary scene had taken place close to the stranger's entrance to the House of Commons. It had been anticipated, of course, that the suffragettes would make an attempt to lay their resolution before the Prime Minister, and a great force of police was massed in readiness before the House. Just about four o'clock, as the long lines of men in their dark blue uniform waited there, two furniture removal vans slowly approached, coming up Victoria Street and round by the green which surrounds the Abbey and St. Margaret's Church, as though they were about to make their way past the House of Commons and along Millbank towards the Tate Gallery and Westminster Embankment. The first van went slowly by the house, the second crawled leisurely in its wake, and along the back ledge of the second van lay a sleepy-looking boy, his eyes idly fixed upon a little man sauntering along the pavement some distance away. Just as this van was passing the stranger's entrance, the little man dropped a handkerchief. Then suddenly the boy sprang from the ledge, the back doors of the van flew open wide, and one and twenty women plunged out and made a rush for the House of Commons. They were blinded by the broad daylight after their long ride in the darkness of the van, and as they jumped, many of them fell on their knees, and groping helplessly ran the wrong way. Nevertheless, there were some who headed straight for the doorway, and two of them managed to get inside, only to be flung back instantly, whilst the police closed round and several arrests were made. Meanwhile, the body of women who had engaged to carry the resolution to the Prime Minister had emerged from the Caxton Hall, and having formed up four abreast in orderly procession, had begun to move quietly forwards towards the House of Commons. Large crowds had gathered to see them whilst the police were drawn up on either side of the road, and at one point formed a line across the thoroughfare. The constables pushed and jostled the women for some time without altogether preventing their passage, but at broad sanctuary, a large contingent of police entirely blocked the way. Undaunted, the women pressed forward, and the crowds, some with the idea of helping the suffragettes, others, from curiosity, pressed forward too. The police charged again and again, and there was grave danger that someone would be trampled underfoot. When at last the streets were cleared, it was found that some fifty women had been arrested. Amongst these, Miss Marie Naylor and Miss Florence Haig, Georgina and Marie Brackenbury, both of them painters, and nieces of General Sir Henry Brackenbury, and Miss Maud Joachim, niece of the great violinist. The suffragette cases came on next morning before Mr. Horace Smith at the Westminster Police Court, Mr. Musket, who prosecuted on behalf of the police then announced that on this occasion the authorities had decided as before to prosecute under the Prevention of Crimes Amendment Act of 1885, which enabled the magistrate to inflict a fine of five pounds or in default to order imprisonment with or without hard labor for two months. Throwing down a remarkable challenge to the women, he added that there were greater and stronger powers in reserve which could be enforced to put down disorder, for there was still upon the statute book an act passed in the reign of Charles II which dealt with tumultuous petitions either to the Crown or Parliament. He recalled the fact that it had been stated by the judge at the time of the Lord George Gordon riots that the act was still good law and he said that the dictum still applied. The act of Charles II provided that no person whatever shall repair to His Majesty or both or either of the Houses of Parliament upon pretense of presenting or delivering any petition, complaint, remonstrance, or declaration or other address accompanied with an excessive number of people, nor at any one time with the above number of twelve persons. Penalties might be enforced under this Act up to a fine of one hundred pounds or three months' imprisonment. 
In holding forth this threat to women who might demonstrate in the future, Mr. Musket again appealed to the magistrate to deal with those who were now charged with all the rigor which he would apply to ordinary lawbreakers. The prisoners were then one by one brought in. Georgina Brackenbury, tall, fair, and well-featured, was the first to be put into the dock. The magistrate affected to take scant interest in the case, and in spite of her own splendid courtesy of manner, addressed her with pettish rudeness and finally interrupted her statement with, That is all nonsense. The whole of the proceedings were conducted in the same spirit. But two women out of the fifty had been imprisoned before, and these two, Mrs. Rigby, the wife of a doctor in Preston, and Mrs. Titterington, as old offenders, were ordered either to pay fines of five pounds or to suffer one month's imprisonment in the third and lowest class. The other forty-seven women were ordered to be bound over in two sureties of twenty pounds, to keep the peace for twelve months or to serve six weeks' imprisonment in the second division. With the exception of two, whose absence from home was found to be impossible owing to the serious illness of relatives, all the women chose imprisonment. All these things were, of course, largely discussed in the press. The furniture van incident attracted the greatest attention, and the van itself was likened by almost every newspaper to the wooden horse of Troy. The Daily Chronicle said, The suffragettes are essentially heroic. First they lashed themselves to the premier's railings, now borrowing an idea from the Trojan horse, they burst forth from a Pantechnicon van. A high standard of artifice has been set and it should be maintained. The Trojan horse would have been of no use if it had remained outside the walls, and though curiosity could never be expected to prompt members to drag a deserted Pantechnicon into the house, there must be occasions when a large-sized packing case is taken into St. Stephen's. The Glasgow Evening Times called for a poet of eudebrastic gifts to rise and embody in heroic verse the deeds of the suffragettes, and asserted that the daring attack yesterday evening on that citadel of democratic liberty, the House of Commons, is of itself sufficient to inspire a Homer, or at least a Peter Pindar. The Evening News said that until the suffragettes had outwitted the policemen by the use of the furniture van, they had never believed in the story of the Trojan horse. Now they knew it to be quite possible after all. In the Women's Parliament it was the more serious side of the case that appealed to us. We saw that the government were preparing still further to resist our just and moderate demands, and rather than concede them were even ready to revive ancient coercive statutes which the customs and principles of modern times had caused to fall into disuse. This act of Charles II with which they had threatened us had originally been passed to obstruct the growth of the Liberal Party, which first came into existence in Stuart times. It was the political descendants of those very liberals who would now use this coercive statute against their countrywomen. Well might Christabel Pankhurst ask in the Women's Parliament, what would have been said if a Tory government had done this thing? This takes us back to stirring times, ladies, she told the women. At last it is realized that women are fighting for freedom as their fathers fought. If they want twelve women, aye, and more than twelve, if a hundred women are wanted to be tried under that act, and to be sent to prison for three months, they can be found. There was no militant demonstration on that day, but everyone knew that something more was to happen, and on Thursday afternoon, the 13th of February, when the Women's Parliament met for its concluding session, a feeling of most extraordinary excitement prevailed. Mrs. Pankhurst had just returned from the by-election at South Leeds, 
and the audience listened eagerly to her account of the campaign, and especially to the story of the torchlight procession and the wonderful meeting of one hundred thousand people on Hunslet Moor. In spite of the fact that police protection had been refused at the last moment, there had been no disorder, only sympathy and enthusiasm all along the route, whilst the vast crowds that parted to let the procession through had joined on to it, and added to its numbers from behind, and some of the women had constantly called out in broad Yorkshire, "'Shall us have the vote?' to be answered by others with cries of, "'We shall!' I have come to London, Mrs. Pankhurst concluded, feeling, as I have never felt before, the seriousness of this struggle. I feel that the time has come when I must act, and I wish to volunteer to be one of those to carry our resolution to Parliament this afternoon. My experience in the country, and especially in South Leeds, has taught me things that cabinet ministers, who have not that experience, do not know, and has made me feel that I must make one final attempt to see them and to urge them to reconsider their position before some terrible disaster has occurred. Then, amid some emotional excitement and cries of, Mrs. Pankhurst must not go, we cannot spare our leader, cries which were calmly set aside by practical business-like Christabel, who announced that the deputation was definitely chosen and that its thirteen members were all prepared to be arrested and tried under the Charles II Act. The resolution was carried, and Mrs. Pankhurst, Annie Kenny, and eleven other women marched out of the hall, whilst almost the whole of the audience flocked into the corridor and stood around the doorway to watch them go. Mrs. Pankhurst had been lamed in the cowardly attack that had been made upon her at Mid-Devon, and had not yet recovered. Seeing this, Mrs. Drummond ran forward to get a conveyance. She saw none for hire, but called to a man in a private dog-cart and asked him if he would drive Mrs. Pankhurst to the House of Commons. He agreed, and the other women formed up on foot behind the vehicle two and two abreast. The police were already massed around in great force, and the little procession had moved but a few slow steps, when a police inspector came forward and insisted that Mrs. Pankhurst should dismount. She instantly obeyed the order, signing to her companions not to protest. The twelve women of the deputation at the same time hurried forward to reform in double line behind their leader, but the inspector and his men dragged them apart. Then the deputation, hemmed in by men, women and police on every side, proceeded in single file as far as Chapel Street. There the inspector said they must not walk in procession. They therefore broke into twos and threes, but when they came to the entrance of Victoria Street the police entirely barred the way, and it was only after a considerable struggle that they were able to gain the main thoroughfare. There a vast concourse of people had assembled, and right in the midst of it one saw Mrs. Pankhurst wearing a loose long cloak, whose light grey colour made her figure stand out from the darkly clad men around. She came forward with Mrs. Baldock clinging to her arm, and tall, pretty, smiling young Gladys Keville, her face a little flushed and her soft hair blowing a little in the wind, walking on the other side, and with the great crowd following and filling the whole street around. Scattered amongst the people behind, and moving forward either singly or in twos, the rest of the deputation followed. Close to Westminster Palace Hotel, Mrs. Pankhurst, who up to this point had followed in the wake of a police inspector and carefully obeyed all the instructions of the police, was arrested and taken through Parliament Square on the side furthest from the house in the strong grip of two burly policemen. Clad in her heavy travelling cloak, her face had grown white with exhaustion, 
and she was evidently in pain, but no heed was paid to her lameness, and she was hurried along at a brisk trot, and at last disappeared down the narrow lane at the top of Bridge Street, which leads to Cannon Row Police Station. Mrs. Baldock and Gladys Keevil, who had refused to leave her, had for this cause been arrested, and almost immediately afterwards Annie Kenny was also taken into custody. Later on the same fate befell Mrs. Kerwood of Birmingham and five others, some of whom were not members of the deputation. Whilst this was happening, the Women's Parliament was still in session, and every now and then someone returned from the battle to describe how events were going. Before the meeting closed, our ever-thoughtful treasurer, Mrs. Pethick Lawrence, urged all not on the fighting line to subscribe to the war chest. More than four hundred pounds had been raised when the prisoners came back to us on bail at the rising of Parliament. In the House of Commons itself, the government's hostile attitude towards the suffragettes was raised as a matter of urgency on the motion for the adjournment by Sir William Bull, the Unionist member for Hammersmith, who showed genuine concern at the news of Mrs. Pankhurst's arrest. Other members of the same party followed by jeering at the government for the marked difference between their treatment of the suffragist woman and the men who had been arrested for cattle-driving and similar offences in Ireland. Why was Mr. Ginnell, the nationalist member for Westmeath, to receive the privileges of a first-class misdemeanant, they asked, while Mrs. Pankhurst and her comrades were to be treated as ordinary criminals? Lord Robert Cecil raised a laugh against the president of the local government board by pointing out that when he, Mr. John Burns, had been in prison for inciting to riot, the government of the day had intervened to secure preferential treatment for him. In reply to all this, Mr. Gladstone refused to take any action, saying that the women could come out of prison whenever they liked. When Mrs. Pankhurst and her comrades were brought up at Westminster Police Court before Mr. Horace Smith next day, it was found that the authorities, who were perhaps disappointed at the way in which their challenge had been accepted, had changed their minds, and instead of prosecuting the women as they had threatened under the Charles II Act, had decided to revert to the old method of stigmatizing the whole affair as a mere vulgar brawl with the police. Probably thinking the true facts would arouse too much public sympathy, the prosecution put forward as evidence an absolute tissue of falsehood, in which it was stated that the deputation had set out from the Caxton Hall singing and shouting in the noisiest manner, and that they had knocked off the helmets of the police and had assaulted them right and left. As we have seen, everything had been done most quietly, and Mrs. Pankhurst herself had carefully complied with every order from the police short of abandoning her intention to reach the House of Commons. Our rebutting evidence was disregarded, and Mrs. Pankhurst's own statement in the dock was cut short by Mr. Horace Smith's saying, I have nothing to do with that. It only amounts to another threat to break the law, and it is in no way relevant here. You, like the others, must find sureties in twenty pounds for twelve months' good behavior, or be imprisoned for six weeks in the second division. Then, as usual, the women were hurried off in the van to prison the Holloway gates were closed upon them, and the government settled down to forget them as far as it could until next time. February 28th was the day for the discussion of the Women's Enfranchisement Bill. In moving its second reading, Mr. H. Y. Stanger, whilst he carefully disassociated himself from the methods of the suffragettes, reminded the House that, if in the course of a political agitation excesses were committed, the authorities should search for the cause of the discontent and apply an appropriate remedy. Mr. Cathcart Wason, another Liberal member, but an anti-suffragist, declared on the other hand that the suffragette movement was founded on riot and that the House should not yield to clamour. 
yet with an entire lack of consistency he went on to extol physical force, saying that because in his opinion women could make no contribution to this, they ought not to be allowed to vote. Evidently he forgot that, whilst the whole trend of civilization has been in the direction of mental rather than physical dominance, in the age when physical force was the governing power, women were actually members of the legislature, and that they retained the right to vote for members of parliament throughout the ages when its possession was looked upon as a burden and until, having become a privilege, it was wrested from them. But all this talk was mere word-spinning. It was a pronouncement from the government benches that was eagerly awaited. As last time, it was Mr. Herbert Gladstone who spoke, and for the ministry, and he soon disclosed the fact that the government was still determined to make no move. It was the old story of opposition in the cabinet, and the old excuse that no party in the House was united either for or against the question. As for the bill, he himself intended to vote for it, for, he said, making an important admission which his colleagues might well have taken to heart, it may be imperfect, but at any rate it removes a disqualification and an inequality which have been for so long a deep source of complaint with great masses of the people of this country. Then Mr. Gladstone went on to make some very remarkable statements, of which both he and the government were afterwards to be reminded. He said, amongst other things, Men have had to struggle for centuries for their political rights. On the question of women's suffrage, experience shows that predominance of argument alone— and I believe that that has been attained, is not enough to win the political day. In any reform movement, he went on to explain, various stages had to be gone through. First, there was the stage of academic discussion, and the ventilation of pious opinions, unaccompanied by effective action, but after this, he continued, becoming perhaps a little carried away by his own words, comes the time when political dynamics are far more important than political argument, you have to move a great inert mass of opinion which, in the early stages, always exists in the country in regard to questions of the first magnitude. Men have learned this lesson and know the necessity for demonstrating the greatness of their movement and for establishing that force majeure which actuates and arms a government for effective work. That is the task before the supporters of this great movement. Looking back at the great political crises in the thirties, the sixties, and the eighties, it will be found that people did not go about in small crowds, nor were they content with enthusiastic meetings in large halls. They assembled in their tens of thousands all over the country. But, said Mr. Gladstone, of course it is not to be expected that women can assemble in such masses. But power belongs to the masses, and through this power a government can be influenced into more effective action than a government will be likely to take under present conditions. Mr. Rees, liberal, then made an attempt to talk out this bill as he had done that of Mr. Dickinson the year before, and after firing off all the jokes that he could think of, he fell back upon the scriptures saying, Jerusalem is ruined and Judah has fallen. As for my people, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with stretched forth necks, therefore the Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and in that day the Lord will take away the bravery of their tinkling ornaments. But at this point he was interrupted by Lord Robert Cecil, who moved the closure of the debate, and on the speakers accepting the motion and its being agreed to without a division, a vote was taken upon the bill itself, in which 271 members voted for the bill and only 92 against. 
there was therefore a favorable majority of 179, the largest that had ever been cast in support of women's suffrage. Unfortunately, it now appeared that Mr. Stanger had been informed beforehand that the closure resolution, which would prevent the talking out of the bill, would only be accepted on condition that he, as the bill's sponsor, would move that it be referred to a committee of the whole House instead of passing automatically to one of the grand committees. Mr. Stanger had agreed to the condition and now fulfilled the promise that had been exacted, and the result was that nothing further could be done with the bill unless the government would provide time for its discussion. Had the cabinet been prepared to act honorably and to stand by the statement of their spokesman, Mr. Gladstone, the position would now have been that, if the women who wanted votes could organize a series of demonstrations which could compare with those held by men in support of the various extensions of the franchise that had already taken place, the government would concede their demands and would either provide time for the passage into law of Mr. Stanger's bill, or introduce and put through its various stages a measure of their own framing. The Women's Social and Political Union were prepared to accept Mr. Gladstone's challenge. End of chapter 11, part 1